Welcome to Garden Views. Interesting conversations with interesting people who have done and or are doing interesting things. So sit back and enjoy. Welcome to Garden Views. This week, our guest is Matt Williams. I know it's not the power hitter from the San Francisco Giants and the Arizona Diamondbacks, but wouldn't that be fun? Now, this this Matt Williams, uh, he is a space journalist and space author. And let's quickly say hello. Hi, Matt. Thanks for coming into Garden Views. Well, thank you. Thank you for the invite. Sure. Uh, Why don't you tell the folks a little bit about yourself, your background, and, and what you're doing now? Um, well, like you said, I'm uh, a space journalist and uh, science communicator is the technical term that, uh, that I often find myself using there, um, mainly because my, my peers do, and it pretty much says it all. Um, I write for uh, a bunch of publications like uh, Universe Today and Interesting Engineering. I am starting a podcast series um, on IITSB Magazine's channel, and... Uh, other than that, uh, I've been doing this for several years and have had the chance to, to meet some very interesting people and, and groups. And, uh, yeah, so I'm very, very interested in sharing stories from, you know, my experiences or talking about developments in space because that's pretty much what I do all day long. Well, that's great. And I stumbled upon Matt probably in one of those areas. Um, I follow a gentleman named... Fraser Kane, not Fraser Crane, but Fraser Kane, who co-hosts a show called The Astronomy Cast with uh, Pamela Gay. And that show, it's in its 600s of X, uh, episodes, probably 620. So, you know, obviously it stood the, the test of time. Um, and in our conversations, it turns out not only does he follow them, but he has a working relationship with uh, for said Kane and Gay, but also with Professor Avi Loeb, Loeb, who um, has never been on my show, but the publicist was kind enough to send me a copy of the book. And if you go back probably about a year, year and a half, um, I did what a show called Book Report, one of my two or three solo shows, which is never my favorite thing to do, where I uh, discussed uh, Avi Loeb's extraterrestrial, ironically, also with Chariots of the Gods, with Eric Von Danigan, so probably two people coming at things from a very uh, different uh, perspective. But Avi Loeb, for those who don't know, is an astrophysicist. He's the head of a department at Harvard. Uh, he, uh, if, if folks remember, a few years back, there was a piece of space debris which was agreed upon to be interstellar. So it came, it originated from outside of our solar system. Uh, it was called Umawuma. I might be pronouncing that incorrectly, which translates to scout, because that's the observatory that, that founded in, in Hawaii. And while most of the scientific community seems to have settled on that it was just a piece of space debris, an asteroid or whatever, uh, Professor Loeb went out on a limb and said no based on the shape and the trajectory and how it changed speeds and motions and directions. It, he doesn't believe that it's possible that it's something natural. He didn't, you know, a lot of people, you know, said it was a, uh, you know, a space invader or whatever. Uh, I think he says it's more like space debris, but basically it was too long and too flat and uh, spherical the way that 
it changed direction, that there was no gassing and, and, and the way light reflected on it. He did not believe it was something that, that we've encountered, at least as of yet, uh, in nature. Anyway, not to take too much on that, but um, it's interesting because now Oumuamua is, again, extra solar system, and so it's probably too late for us to find it. But uh, he launched something called the Galileo Project, or, or him and others launched it, and now they are looking for similar objects, uh, as well as his other duties. And I only mention that because this is someone that Mr. Williams indicated that you were part of uh, his research or was a, or uh, became associated with it or, or familiar with it. So I'll let you tell the story better than me. Oh, okay. Well, thank you. Yeah. Well, so, yeah, I'm, I I know Professor Lopen. We talked on uh, many occasions and I've uh, reviewed his book and a lot of his research. Uh, I haven't contributed uh, uh, I'm sad to say, but um, well, they they would be best not to not to get me involved in their research. There, I <laughs> technically not a not a physicist, so I wouldn't really be of much help. But um, yeah, our association actually goes back to about 20, 2014, about the time I started writing for uh, Fraser Kane in Universe Today, and at the time he was um, he was deep into talking about hypervelocity stars, and which are stars that periodically get, get kicked out of galaxies, um, either due to interactions with a black hole, or they just they get spun up by a, a companion that sets them off. And, and he wrote how, um, yeah, these, these stars can carry their planets along with them. So we talked, and I was hugely inspired, because I thought, that is, that's science fiction gold right there. But also a really, really interesting study um, because, uh, and, and I've seen lots of subsequent papers, and just the other day, in fact, I saw one, that said that this could be how life is being uh, distributed throughout the cosmos. Um, no, not just on a uh, one solar system to another from asteroids, but entire galaxies could be populated by, the, by uh, life by. Uh, by start being uh, flung out with their planets, um, and uh, yeah, so over the years we had a we had a chance to speak quite a bit about any new research he had coming out because he's he's very prolific. He, yeah, he was the uh, chair of astronomy at Harvard. Um, he founded their black hole initiative and their um, yeah their uh, advanced computation group, and so they do all the theory, the heavy theoretical physics stuff and the black hole stuff and so there was always really some always interesting research coming out and then um yes 2017 was when Oumuamua flew by oh yes i was gonna say you were very close in your pronunciation in your pronunciation there it's Oumuamua right that's uh yeah it's all about where where you stress what syllables you stress <laughs> there and um yeah it was about a year later well, it was, obviously, that was a very, very interesting occurrence because that was the first interstellar object we've ever detected, and it suddenly it triggered a huge slew of research, not the least of which was from him and his uh, and his associates there at uh, Harvard Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics at Harvard itself, and, and uh, yeah, they were running a lot of uh, simulations on how common these objects would be. And uh, and then there there was uh, some interesting findings from other researchers uh, who were doing related stuff, and they said that yeah, there 
there will there would have been uh, countless interstellar objects entering our solar system over in the course of its history, and several thousand of them would have stayed and been captured. And they were even pointing out which objects are likely to be captured objects and that we could go study in the coming years. And then Professor Loeb did his, um, um, because of his work with Starshot, um, you know, he'd been deep into talking about light sail craft and, you know, tiny spacecraft with giant, giant sails uh, that could be used for interstellar uh, exploration. And so, yeah, that's how it sort of came together. He got to thinking, well, now let's look at all the information about Oumuamua and why it was uh, defying conventional explanation. And yeah, you're, you, you nailed it in a nutshell there. It's like, well, yeah, it was, uh, it was either really long and slender or spherical, but yeah, longer than it was wide, very, very flattened by most accounts. And they didn't see any tail developing from it when it came around the sun. Upon first detection, it was just a bright object, no, no indication of, of gas coming off of it. And it was, uh, yeah, it had a um, rather uh, high speed and it picked up an additional boost of speed as it was leaving our solar system. And again, they, they checked it and they said, well, we can't prove there's any outgassing. It might be a little far for us to know for sure, but... You know, if, if that's what caused it to accelerate, then we we would have noticed before when it passed, made its closest pass to the sun. And and they're like, and we can't we can't factor in gravitational uh, influence there because the way it accelerated, it it, it diverged from a traje uh, trajectory dictated by the planets and their orbits at the time. So everybody started jumping on this with, well, okay, what could explain how it accelerated at the end? Um, that is, you know, not a comet, basically. What else could they be? And one after another, they all they all seem pretty far fetched. And and so he he said, well, just let's put the evidence to this possibility that's an artificial object, and that it picked up a boost because it was hit by. You know, solar pressure, and that would also explain why it was bright and weirdly shaped, and uh, why it didn't start tumbling erratically after it did start accelerating. All the stuff you'd expect to see from a natural object. And to date, <clears throat> there's only one explanation that uh, for a natural object that actually, you know, made sense and could. And uh, many would, many have argued that this this explains everything and so forth. And I've heard the back and forth uh, about this theory too, and it's like, at the very least, this explanation does kind of stand toe-to-toe -to -toe with the the alien probe idea. It's that it was a nitrogen iceberg, that these are objects that that do exist, and they, they are what happen when stuff in the outer solar system collides and creates all kinds of objects that get hurled out. And, uh, yeah, well, the debate is ongoing about that. It's like, that, that would also account for what we saw. It wouldn't have been ob obvious that it was outgassing. It, uh, it could have picked up acceleration by nitrogen just getting uh, melting there and uh, or sublimating and, and, and blowing off. And we, it wouldn't have been obvious to us with our instruments that that was what was happening. So, yeah, it's like it's a possibility, but... There's another possibility. Like one way or another. Yeah. 
So this yeah. is this yeah. is where there's a conflict in my interest because we're on Garden Views now, and Garden Views wants to stick to just the facts, and so mm-hmm. so there's two coexistent, uh, two, you know, that they agreed upon, and that doesn't mean that there aren't other explanations. Just we don't know what they are yet. Now, Garden of Doom, our, my, my sister show, my, my actual baby, we absolutely want it to be space junk from or an alien probe. I mean, that, that's what Garden of Doom wants. And, and of course, since that's my baby, that's what I want. But, but I have to accept that there, it could be a nitrogen uh, asteroid as well. Or, yeah, and, that, that's, yeah. and that is fine. And that's not really the purpose of our show. But for those of you who, you know, again, you, I think it's around episode, I don't know, it's probably in the 20s. Where I did it, but if you want to listen to Avi Loeb himself, he, I'm sure he's been on lots of podcasts, probably the Astronomy Cast. He he was he's certainly been on Earth Ancients with Cliff Dunning, who by the way was my guest, episode fifty, cheap plug on Garden of Doom. Um, but he's been on uh, Cliff's show at least twice, and once directly because of this book. So uh, check that out. It's probably around the same time that the, the Cliff was on my show. It was probably you know around episode fifty, so probably about a year and a half. So if you want to do a search for that. Um, but Matt is here to also talk about lots of things. And when he told me all things he's expert, he's expert in, some of them are probably more for Garden Doom or, or, or maybe a different episode of Garden Views. But I still want to figure out what they are and maybe tease the audience. That, you know, if after this, Matt, you know, doesn't hate me, doesn't hate the whole experience and wants to come back again, maybe uh, we'll get him back and talk about those things. But one of the things was cosmology. So what is cosmology? Well, that's, um, that is basically the study of the universe as a whole, um, uh, particularly its, its origins. Um, you know, where did, how did it all begin? Where did we all come from? How did things get from there to here? And how's it going to end? Or is it going to end? You know, and so it's, yeah, it, it is where astronomy and astrophysics get really philosophical and existential. And it's, it's, of course, it's grounded in science. Um, um, wasn't always the case, but it's like the uh, the term cosmology has meant uh, different things over time. Because, yeah, the, the root word is just, you know, um, it, it comes down to existence and so forth. So, you know, that, that is, that is uh, you know, a, a field that religion has uh, continues to, to play on and, um, and philosophy and metaphysics and so forth. But, yeah, scientifically... Cosmology is um, the yeah the application of the scientific method to all the big big questions, and it's it's very fascinating too. Because, yeah, the the theories that get tossed around in there. We're talking everything from the the Big Bang, dark matter, dark energy, um, uh, how galaxies evolve, extrasolar planets, oh, and all of it has yeah. Yeah, any, any, any work, any discovery in these areas has such deep implications, right? Yeah. It's endless. The, the articles that I see on, on various sites, and you know, some of them repeat the same articles over and over again in different forms of sensationalism, but you know, that, that our reality may be a lab experiment or a science experiment. Basically, we're in the matrix. Um, the, you know, uh, interdimensions, which, of course, quantum physics you know, somehow theorizes is possible, uh, maybe even likely, depending on who you talk to. I don't pretend to really understand that stuff. I, um, people famously know I don't even like British science fiction, and I'm really not the biggest fan of Spider-Man Into the Multiverse and the latest Doctor Strange because I just am not interested in other dimensions. It's, 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 you know, yeah. it's, it's too easy. Um, 
you know, that, that the, the Big Bang Theory was actually one in a series of infinite Big Bang Theories going backwards, that our universe is not the first universe. So, so when you say everything has happened before, uh, in fact, maybe in fact it has, because in infinity, yes, everything has happened before um, and will happen again. Um, you know, going back to uh, what they kept saying in Battlestar Galactica and, and uh, well, pretty much mm-hmm. religions to Shirley MacLaine and the reincarnation and you, you name it. At some point, science and religion, they're, you know, they're, they seem to be getting closer and closer, especially when I saw something where scientists could, could detect electronic um, discharges from the brain after a body died. I mean, and that's energy and you know uh, how is that so different from a soul if at all I, I don't know it depends what's in that energy right but we can't read it yet um so anyway so relativity i assume when you said relatively you meant the the theory of relativity einstein was i correct about that or is there, is there more to it uh, no yeah uh, that, that is einstein and and where when it comes to cosmology right yeah that is uh one of two fields that can explain how things work on, uh, you know, on, on the total scale, right? And it describes how things work on the, on the larger scale, gravity. Whereas, yeah, quantum mechanics describe how everything works on the tiniest of scales. And, yeah, even in, in quantum theory, there are people who are drawing a connection between that and consciousness and thinking maybe they're the same. And, well, yeah. Right. Like if you don't if you don't want to go down a multiverse rabbit hole, yeah, it's probably good to hang back from quantum mechanics because oh, that does get weird. Yeah, it, it'll hurt. It'll hurt my brain, so maybe it'll hurt someone else's brain too. Um, the theory of relativity, everybody's heard it at least in the last seventy five years, thereabouts, probably longer. Um, all I really understand is that basically that if you move faster than the speed of light, time sort of starts to bend and eventually can go backwards i'm sure that there's much more to it than that mm-hmm. well yeah that's that's known as time dilation and it's what states that um that no object can ever go faster than the speed of light and i'll, I'll tell you why in a second there but yeah time dilation is that when you accelerate um to the point where you're getting closer and closer to the speed of light you're going to notice time is slowing down by greater and greater measures right and uh, so, yeah, objects that are doing that, they, their inertial mass, as it's called, increases, right? That's, that's what Einstein was explaining with E equals mc squared, right? If you, as you accelerate towards the speed of light, time slows, but your mass increases as a way of sort of maintaining balance, which means that more energy is going to be needed to push you further along and go faster. And so this is why no objects can reach or exceed the speed of light because their mass will become infinite it, and the, the energy that would be required to get them to that point would be infinite so it's like well if you can find a loophole in that and there are people actually who are working on that very thing right now um great but otherwise yeah we live in a relativistic universe and you gotta accept that that uh yeah nothing nothing can be uh, uh light uh you know in a foot race so um, Superman one lied to us. Uh, yeah, yeah. And and yeah, Star like Wars. Went, the like oh yeah, he went back yeah. to reverse it to save Lois from the uh, nuclear bomb that yeah. Lex Luthor dropped. Uh, uh, not before yeah. racing Otisville. 
Um, my favorite part yeah. of that movie, by the way. Um, and yeah. So yeah, re- reversing Earth's rotation doesn't reverse time either. That was, you know, it was kind of fun for you know just uh, superhero purposes. But uh, oh yeah, they they really they really lied to us there. So anything with the Flash doing it also nonsense. All right, and Star Wars with a hyperspace, no such thing. Well, yeah, um, that this is a has been the ongoing thing with science fiction, right? It's like the universe just doesn't seem fun unless you can really just go through it, but you have to exceed the speed of light in order to get anywhere in a short amount of time. Um, and there is actually a theory for going faster than the speed of light. It's called the, the Alcubierre warp drive, or the um, and the Alcubierre metric, which describes it there. And I, I had the, the opportunity to talk to... Uh, Dr. Uh, Harold Sonny White, and he's the guy who did all the warp research for NASA. And he um, he retired from NASA uh, in 2019, and, and he, he's now in part of a nonprofit that's continuing this research called uh, uh, Limitless Space. And um, yeah, so we, we had a chat, um, and basically he described in, in uh, you know eight year old terms how that worked because I. I Basically understood how it worked, but not, uh, you know, in an intelligent fashion there. Um, but yeah, it's the, the idea there is that, well, you can't um, exceed the speed of light, but what if you could make it that space-time itself around you, that it was uh, contracting in front of you and expanding behind you using actual known principles of physics, um, then you could basically, with... You, the ship itself would not be moving, but rather just it's uh, the the local area space time there. This this bubble would be shooting you along, and then yeah, you you are basically going faster than the speed of light, but only according to somebody who's watching from the outside. You who are in the bubble, it's like you're moving along, but your ship's uh, speedometer says zero. And so you are surfing on, you're basically riding something else moving faster than the speed of light, the, yeah. be, the bending of yeah. actually something physical? Yeah. Yeah, because space-time, and then this, this also goes back to, to Einstein there, it's like space-time does bend, right? It, it has a, a curvature which is caused by gravity and uh you know, objects with mass cause the space-time curvature to sort of bend around it, or, and um, and one of the ways he sort of stumbled onto uh, relativity was that it's like, well, there's really no difference between acceleration and gravity. If you're on a ship and it suddenly starts accelerating, um, you know, and you're you're standing there on the deck with your head facing to the top of it, uh, you feel like you're experiencing gravity right you're being pushed down and if it's going uh, 9.8 meters per second squared that's the same speed at, at which gravity happens you feel like you're standing on earth and he is the example of an elevator right if you cut the cord on an elevator it starts to do free fall the person inside feels weightless um and once it hits the ground however they go it's uh, they they get hit with a force of gravity that's much more intense and that will probably crush them completely. Um, so is this, so, in essence, I'm water skiing, there's a wave that somehow is going much faster than the boat I'm going on, and 
I catch that wave with the water skis and I somehow pass the boat. Yeah. In fact, that's, yeah, that's a, that's a perfectly good analogy there, right? It's like, if the properties of the water can be toyed with, exploited, to create that wave, then yeah, you would be riding atop of that and you wouldn't, you wouldn't be, you wouldn't have to move at all yourself, right? You wouldn't have to insert yourself to, to start moving. So yeah, you could go way faster than you otherwise would be. And yeah, the one, the one drawback about the whole, um, this whole idea is you'd have to generate a tremendous amount of, uh, of energy and negative mass. That's one of the principles there. And it's theoretically possible. It's just we don't really know how to do that yet. So that's, yeah, that's that's how that's coming along there, right? We're working incrementally towards the point where we can generate negative mass on such a scale that it would be enough to surround a spaceship and make it just go, right? Well, we'd also have it's, to figure out where we want to go. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and I guess when yeah. we want to get there, right? I mean... Yeah, both. Yeah. You need some sort of a, uh, you know, a GPS system, which, you know, uh, mm-hmm. I mean, uh, unless you really want to go places that no man has gone before, or at least not in, mm-hmm. in this in this uh, big bang reality. Um, yeah. Okay. So let's go on to the next thing, exoplanets. So exoplanets, as I understand them, are planets that are outside of this solar system, Um uh, and then, of course, that's that's where the, the subcategory of Goldilocks exoplanets are planets in other solar systems where we believe under un, our understanding of what the parameters of, you know, where life can survive are within zones that there's, you know, enough gravity, but not too much as some form of atmosphere that water can be produced. The temperature is not too terribly extreme, I, I suppose. Though I guess that that gets the more life we discover on Earth in extreme temperatures, I suppose that that maybe changes. I'm not sure, but um, why should I speculate or say what what I know from you know my level when I have an expert here? So tell us a little bit about exoplanets. It's funny. I was just talking to uh, to a colleague about them, um, but yeah, the you're you're absolutely right. The term refer is the full term is extrasolar planet, which refers to any planet that is beyond our solar system. And um, in fact, we have only been detecting them since 1992, um, which um, I found very interesting. But yeah, it's like back in the prior to uh, the, at that point, scientists had no um, no definitive confirmed evidence that planets even exist beyond us. There, there were plenty of hints, right? They, they noticed that stars wobble, and that implied that, you know, their gravitational force was uh, was working on them and shaking them back and forth. And that became one of the two best ways of determining that there are planets there, measuring how the star moves. Um, but yeah, as of 1992 and after, we were finally at the point where our instruments were sophisticated enough that we could apply this and other methods to to indirectly detect exoplanets and uh, yeah we're, we're now getting to the point where the instruments are getting sophisticated enough that we're going to be able to directly detect and study them and what that's going to lead to is, is um, yeah we're going to be in a, in a point there where we're no longer focused on discovery but characterization and we're actually going to be able to characterize these planets uh, for sure you know um, yeah, so 
to date, the best we could do is uh, we could say that, well, okay, so we, we watch the star, and every so often its light dips a little, and this is called the transit method, right? It's like those dips, if they're consistent, if, if they're every few days or few years or however long, sometimes even uh, hours, then that confirms that there is a planet orbiting that star with an orbital period of whatever. So it takes uh, you know weeks to a year to complete a full orbit. And based on how, how low the light dips, right, it's, it's usually just a tiny amount, but that's enough to get a good reading on how, how large the planet is. And you combine that with the orbital period, it's like, well, okay, so at that size, um, and the way that, that orbital period, we can, we can safely say that it's, um, yeah, it's this far from the star, and given that that star is, you know, particularly bright and powerful, um, that's going to be a hellish place. Um, otherwise, it's like, well, yeah, the, this distance is right where it would need to be to get enough energy so that water can be liquid on its surface. And the the other technique I mentioned, you know, where you, you watch the star for signs of wobble, yeah, that's called the, the radial velocity method, or Doppler spectros spectroscopy. And, um, yeah, that there, it's like you're, you're able to measure the gravitational influence that the planets have on this star, and that works really well for... for so, all right, we got uh, cut off there, but we re reconnected, and uh, I believe at the time uh, Matt got cut off, he was sort of talking about the wobble and how we direct uh, or detect exoplanets. Mm-hmm, yeah. Um, sorry about that, folks. Um, yeah, so... This, this method is known as the radial velocity method, right? And it is, um, it's very good for determining the mass of the planets that orbit uh, around a star, especially dimmer stars like uh, the red dwarfs. They're not really bright enough to, uh, to do transit, uh, the transit method with. So, but combined with the transit method, it's like you can determine... Um, you can determine not only uh, if the, the presence of planets and how big they are, but also how massive they are. And from that, that's that's currently what our main uh, means of determining if a planet is potentially habitable. That's what it comes down to. You, you're indirectly determining how big this planet is, where it orbits, if it's in the Goldilocks zone. And based on size and next to its mass, whether or not it's a, a rocky planet. So that's that's how astronomers so far have been able to say, uh, we think this place is potentially habitable because it's uh, it's uh, close in, in size and mass to Earth, and it's far enough away from the sun that it's going to be getting all the, uh, the heat and radiation it needs. Um, but the problem with that is is that you can't you, you can't say for certain whether or not the planet has an atmosphere whether or not it's got a global magnetic field. Um, you can't uh, tell what the composition of its atmosphere is. So that's something we're, we're looking forward to, right, with direct imaging. It's like you not only need uh, powerful telescopes for that, you need a lot of the advanced tools that we've only had uh, started having recently. And that includes uh, an instrument called a coronagraph, which will is capable of blocking light uh, from images that are taken by telescopes. 
So it's like, well, if you apply that right where the, the sun, where its uh, bright disk is, and block that out, then suddenly you can see light coming from around it much better. And then, uh, well, yeah, if you can see small, uh, small points of light that are moving around it, you know that there are planets there. And if you can then scan those, that light coming from those planets, right, because it's, it's being reflected off of them, if you can run that through a spectrometer, which will, you know breaks down light into its different uh, colors, its different wavelengths, um, you can then pick up chemical signatures because different chemicals absorb and, and radiate light at different frequencies. And then, so it's like, okay, from the, uh, that collected information, the, the spectra, um, we know that there is oxygen and nitrogen and carbon dioxide in that atmosphere. And then from that, it's like, well, that's, that's what we know. Life as we know it needs to survive. So that's a great sign. And what else? Uh, detecting things like methane, which is an organic molecule and is associated with life. It's like, yep, we see that there too. Great. That means that, yeah, this, this planet went from potentially habitable to habitable. Of course, the next step beyond that is, is it inhabited? Uh, well, we'd, we'd have to get closer for that. Right. Or we'd have, yeah. Or we'd have to spot telltale signs of that there. Like, uh, yeah, lights. we detect industrial pollutants. Hmm? Lights, signals, pollution, yeah. satellites, uh, you know, yeah. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> yeah, and it's like we're, we're getting closer to that point, and it may come sooner than we think or or not, but um, yeah. What, what, like a, if, if what a time to be alive. I mean, I wish I was a little bit younger. Um, so this is there are so many things I want to ask you, but I think that they're better for Garden of Doom. So I'm really, I'm, I'm biting my tongue so many times on things that are, Serious, but you know, are tied into other frivolous things. But, but I'm going to stop because this is Garden of Views, and I'm going to behave. Uh, that's behaving too. It's just a different kind of behaving. Um, so this is a great segue into what's actually planned in terms of crewed missions, but it can be un unmanned missions too. And and by by whom really? I mean, because there's now there's governmental actors, uh, but there's also non-governmental actors, and uh, and I imagine there is there will or are some private public partnerships as well if not now coming so what can you tell us about crewed missions or other large missions that are important going to the moon or mars or you know wherever else that, that, that you think is on the near-term horizon you know and by that i'd say within the next you know decade yeah well yeah um, within the next decade uh, it is going to be the uh, the moon to mars uh, uh, plan right, and that's um, if uh, looking at NASA, who is still very much the leader in space, right? Um, yeah, the this is a plan they've been working on since about the mid two thousands, and yeah, it was back then it was all about uh, we we need to build uh, some heavy launch rockets again. Um, we plan to retire the space shuttle within the next few years, so we need something that is. Um, not just send stuff to low Earth orbit, but beyond it. Because, yeah, nothing had been beyond, uh, nothing human-rated had been beyond low Earth orbit since uh, uh, 1972 in the Apollo era. Right. And, uh, well, we're still at that point, but we're getting very close to, to breaking it. So, yeah, what, what's going to happen first is Artemis, um, and that's that's its current name, but it's, it's really just a, the successor to, right, 2000 
by 2010, 2016, when, you know, sort of the, the mission architecture was all being uh, put in place and shared. And so Artemis is basically phase one and two of NASA's long-term plans. Let's build the new rockets, the new spacecraft. Let's keep doing research on the ISS into microgravity and radiation because we really need to know about how that's going to affect us. Um, and then let's uh, let's send missions to the moon again. And the idea was that between, um, yeah, 2020, I think, was the... Uh, 2016, I think, actually, was the, the uh, original go date, but it, it got pushed back. Um, yeah, it's like we're going to start in uh, the early 2020s. We're going to start sending rockets up, test how they how they do, send a crew up, see, send them on a, a journey around the moon. And then uh, there, there was at one time they were going to tow an asteroid to lunar orbit, and uh, a mission was going to go rendezvous with that to... You know, test out all their capabilities and give the crew some some uh, time and space. Um, but that got scrapped in 2016, and then it was no. Let's let's send that mission to the lunar surface. Big triumphant return, right? A big big sort of payoff in terms of PR. And it's like, well, yeah, that's a good idea too. So NASA made that adjustment. And but then uh, a key part of phase two, which then would work on to phase three was they they said we want to build the lunar gateway and that's uh, the uh, the orbiting space station that's going to be in orbit of the moon and uh, we we want that there and then you know if you if we were going to do a return to the lunar surface well great we'll put a reusable lunar lander there because this station is going to be the thing that spacecraft coming from earth dock with and so you got a lunar lander, basically can pop up and down, and we can do missions that are weeks long, not not just a you know a couple days. And uh, yeah, and this and this fit in with the idea that yeah, we also want to develop infrastructure on the surface, so possible refueling depots or whatever that's been recommended for a long time. And then we want to put a spaceship on that lunar gateway, um, which is going to once you dock the Orion spacecraft with the station, you then transfer it onto the front end of this spacecraft, and it takes you to Mars. And so, yeah, phase three there was that, yeah, we're going to use that spaceship first to send another space station, a modular thing, in orbit around Mars. And it's going to have its own reusable lander. And so when we start sending astronauts, um, which would start in 2033, right? Mm -hmm. That first mission, yeah, the crew would go, they would rendezvous with the uh, the Mars Base Camp uh, station on the other side, and then use a, a reusable lander to, you know, go travel up and down and do uh, do a couple weeks on the surface and then come home. So all that was, yeah, this this has been the long term plan, and it's, it's uh, yeah, it's, it's it's long, it's expensive, but the idea was that, yeah, for one thing, we want to go back to the moon, but we want us to stay this time. We want to establish all the infrastructure to stay. Uh, we're not doing another footprints and flags kind of mission uh, like we did with the Apollo era. Because it's like nobody nobody would ever doubt the accomplishments of the Apollo era, but it's like it, that was all about getting there first, right? Now right. we want to get there and Let's keep going there. back there. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So That's, I have yeah. – how, how, I mean, 
this sounds like, I mean, aside from patience and some technology, there's a lot of logistics involved. I mean, I, I presume that they have, you know, they have got, you know, pod type of technology that can be habitations. And, you know, we've, you know, most people have seen sort of the, either the science fiction shows or the, the projections on, you know, uh, nonfiction television where they have sort of the enclosures, I guess, so you take like the International Space Station model and you, or Lego, and you sort of build them together. But, I mean, obviously you need to have other things there, like air, you need to have working, um, you need to have food, which I, I, I mean, I'm sure you can supply with, you know, some things, uh, and water. And I, I guess that requires the, you put tons and tons of uh, bottled water there, or that you, or that they can find or create water um, on the, the surface of the moon and or Mars, or you have constant resupplies, which would be, I mean, I guess would be really, really heavy and really, really expensive. So are there any, how do they plan to address, you know, one, the actual, you know, the actual physical structures, which is probably the easiest answer, and then the logistics of the necessities to live and operate and do something functional up there, aside from just being there? Yeah. Uh, yeah, good question. And there is a wealth of work that uh, that is being done, actually, to address both. Um, so to talk about structures, yeah, um, and this is this is a good way to, to bring in you know what other space agencies are doing too. So uh, NASA is of course partnered with the European Space Agency, with uh, the Japanese uh, JAXA and uh, Canadian Space Agency and others, um, all of its partners aboard the ISS, right? Uh, with the exception of Russia now. Right. Uh, Russia's been pulling out, there's, yeah, their cooperation's on hold there. But uh, yeah, they've been working for years about how do we build structures on the surface of another planet um, that um, would allow for uh, long-term, long-duration stays. Because yeah, they've got uh, they've got module type things that, uh, or you know, the spacecraft themselves, like the uh, the, the lunar lander and that had been proposed, and also the uh, the Mars one. It's like these are large enough to accommodate crew and have supplies that could keep them you know alive and well for weeks. But we want them to have like research stations and and the actual habitats. That they that future crews can just keep going to and kind of like the ISS, and so yeah, um, both NASA and ESA had some very interesting ideas, and the European Space Agency I think was definitely the more elaborate one, and it's uh, they call theirs the International Moon Village, and the idea is yeah, let's transport some semi-inflatable structures, set them down. We rig them all up with um, with solar panels, and um, NASA was doing work on. Well, yeah, we also want some lightweight nuclear reactors, and we want to take the we want to harvest the local resources to build these places up and give them radiation shielding and such. So, three D printers is 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 a very uh, very widely consulted technology there on that, and. Um, and yeah, we want to harvest the local water ice to provide for our basic needs there. So this way we're not dependent upon resupply from Earth so much. And that's and drinkable? Be, yeah. And that's, uh, I mean, because of course, that's like, that's the biggest expense there would be uh, launching 
ship after ship carrying supplies. It's easy to do with the uh, with the ISS, right? Um, it uh, a launch can will take uh, just a few hours to reach it, dock with it, unload it, and then you know they throw their garbage in there and boom, off it goes. Um, you know the launch process is still expensive, but it's gotten so much cheaper. But if you want to go beyond low Earth orbit, it's like well, you you either need a rocket that you're throwing away after one use, or you need to refuel it in orbit. And well, that's you know we we got ideas for that too, but we'd like to minimize that so yeah and then the same the same is true of mars right how do we turn the local ice and all that root that uh, the rich uh, silica soil into uh, building materials drinking water you know and we want to pair that with some uh, garden beds and uh, hydroponics and all that stuff to produce as much food as we can and that's going to allow us to uh, to send people there to live uh, for you know, a, a, a few months, you know, certainly at a time, um, possibly up to a year or more uh, on the moon. And, uh, yeah, whereas they're, they're going to be dependent upon Earth for supplies to, to an extent, they'll be able to see to their own needs as much as possible locally. Uh, and there's a word I've been waiting to use. I just keep forgetting to use it. It's... Uh, it's, it's called in-situ resource utilization, Ooh. or ISRU. Yeah, and that's a that's a major buzzword with uh, all these, you know, mission planners and designers, right? So well, well before I forget, I'm, I'm going to need you to yeah. to DM me that word because that's going to be the title of the show. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. Um, so the yeah the idea being that uh, you're using you're using local resources as much as possible, and that actually has a lot to do with where you choose to land. So a lot of lunar exploration and Martian exploration right now is targeted at regions where we know there's there's water. Because yeah, the last thing we want is for people on the surface to start going thirsty because that's a quick way to die. Oh, and you mentioned oxygen, like air. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Again, again, you bring you gotta bring uh, that with you for obvious reasons, but you can produce it on site too, and that's another thing. Water, local ice would be good for you. Just you chemically disassociate it, you can create oxygen gas. Uh, you know, plug that in with a uh, like also a, a tank of nitrogen, um, which I think uh, I don't think they have the means to make that on the moon yet. But that's okay. You you. Put the nitrogen on to fill the air, and then oxygen. You mix them about 70-30, and the crew can breathe happily. And also, you don't have to worry about uh, lighting up. In a pure oxygen environment, you would kill yourselves if you <laughs> tried to light anything on fire. <laughs> yes. Um, yes, that would yeah, be very bad. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so so for the love of God, make sure the, the, you know, the nitrogen valve is open, too. <laughs> and... And uh, meanwhile, all the hydrogen you've gotten out of the water and separate from, you can use that to make uh, to make fuel. All right. Well, the, like, we'll the yes, the, the cartoon part of my brain right now is is wishing we had the Green Lantern to go find one of those nitrogen comets and tow it over, so you have a ready uh, supply of nitrogen. Yeah. Well, yeah. It's like if, if you the farther out you get into space, too. That's that's something that uh, a lot of the long term planning is. It's like, well, it's great. Uh, because a lot of these uh, gases um, that are really, really useful, um, yeah, the further out you go, 
the more you'll find because it's just it's frozen solid and you can you can chip off a, uh, a block of methane ice and uh, you know melt it uh, back in the habitat and you got uh, gases to cook with you know right. but again don't light up <laughs> right 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 yeah right no, no. Yeah. flame flame free zone um, yeah. th- this is a great segue I think into what are the laws and or, or treaties exist. Now, I understand that there's these partnerships between the space agencies, but is there anything beyond that? For instance, I, I know that there was a treaty on the moon, um, but I, I think that the United States is not a party to it. I, I know that yeah. the, the last administration issued an, an executive order, which I'm not sure how enforceable that is, period, but it basically said that any private companies could, you know, I guess through a license, through Space Force or whatever, could, could go up to any celestial body, including the moon, asteroids, and Mars, and they could harvest whatever, you know, mineral or resource rights they would, but they couldn't claim the celestial body for their own. It was still, I guess, uh, U.S. or, yeah. I guess it was silent on, on that. Those Trump administration. So I'm guessing there was at least a U.S. right of first, you know, U.S. company, U.S. right of first refusal. Um, but... Aside from me guessing or, or rehashing things I read a year ago or six months ago, um, what what actually is there that you've come across in your journalistic uh, endeavors? Yeah. Well, yeah, that's a good one, and it's uh, it's becoming a, uh, a very very contentious issue. And uh, in fact, uh, one of the uh, the groups I, uh, I I talk to pretty regularly and I'm uh, sort of a uh, semi-affiliate with um, is the Spaceport Foundation. And, uh, yeah, the Space Generation Advisory Council, they are they are the ones, they are the uh, the first non-profit uh, legal entity that's trying to iron all this stuff out, right? Trying to create an international framework for all this humans going out there. And there's, there's also the Kepler Space Institute, uh, of which I'm part, that is trying to come up with um, a legal certification process for space medicine. So there's a lot of work going into addressing all the things that we know we're going to have to deal with. Um, but your, your question was existing treaties, and uh, of them, the most important, the most far-reaching is the Outer Space Treaty. And, and that, was, uh, that was passed in... Um, 1967, and uh, that was originally um, the Soviets, US, and the UK were signing it, but today, uh, yeah, well over a hundred nations have signed on to it and uh, and uh, um, recognize it. And the, the basics of it was that, yeah, the exploration of space is to be done for the benefit of all countries, all mankind. You can't claim things in space. Um, the Moon Treaty is was uh, meant to be an addendum. And it was, uh, yeah, it was uh, put passed, uh, it passed through the UN in 1979. But unfortunately, yeah, it, it was not signed by the United States or, or any other power that, you know, would have the means to, like, enforce it and give it, uh, and, and make it meaningful. Um, and there's, there's a slew, dozens of other treaties that were agreed to that cover everything from rescuing astronauts and uh, you know, liability for damage to, to other people's spacecraft or their, uh, you know, their equipment. Um, yeah, and um, 
all, all of these were specifically designed with, you know, let's demilitarize space before before it becomes militarized. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, but in terms of um, yeah, in terms of the moon, yeah, the uh, Trump administration complicated things somewhat. They said that um, there there had already been measures passed that, about uh, commercial activities in space, which was signed uh, by the Obama administration. But uh, yeah, the Trump administration took a the really bold move of saying. Uh, yeah, asteroid mining and mining on the moon is now legal, and companies can keep their resources. Beyond that, I, I have no idea what legal precedents it actually established. Because you're you're absolutely right; it's uh, that is a sticky legal question. It's like who gets to decide who who works where and whatever. And they did they did refer it back to the Outer Space Treaty, right? So it's like mm-hmm. wherever. Uh, a national entity is exploring, they're responsible for anybody there. Yes. And, uh, and my, yeah. in, in real life, I'm a lawyer. I'm not a constitutional lawyer, but I, ha- I retain enough of it to remember that treaties need to be ratified by, I believe it's the Senate, um, if not the House and the Senate. But that wasn't done with this executive order. And I, and the executive, the Article 2 executive, has is the commander-in-chief of the military and runs foreign policy. Now, where does, yeah. you know, well, this is not military, um, so it doesn't fall in that. And if you're running foreign policy, I mean, where does foreign policy end? Does it not, does it end at our atmosphere or does it go beyond? So I'm not even sure that there's a law on earth that could satisfactorily address this. And, you know, there's probably other actual cases out there like this, but there's actually a federal case where somebody sued Satan. And... A, a federal judge said, dismissed the case, and looking for a reason to dismiss it, they said, well, the laws of earth and man do not apply to Satan that is not, an, you know, a, an earthly, uh, an earthbound creature or some, something like that, um, which could be precedent in a case for somebody saying, you can't stop me, U.S., or you can't stop me, China, or you can't stop me, whomever, uh, well, U.S., I guess, would be precedent, but say, hey, your own court said you don't have authority, you know, on things that are not earthbound. And, you know, you want to talk about satellites or whatever and, and go as far as 22,000 miles. I, I doubt it. But, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going, you know, 22 million miles or you know, however far Mars is. And uh, surely the, the laws of Earth don't apply that far, um, which... I guess could apply to a government if one government thought it was so far and away beyond another one with its capabilities, including space military, which, you know, we have space force, but they're the, you know, a pretty small branch. And I don't know that anyone, any government feels that and probably they're still in most of their assets are on earth. So that brings us to private entities. Um, and, I'm sure most of those private entities, if you have that kind of money, that you know, kind of blow felt money, you know, a specter or whatever, um, it, it's based on you know, earth-based technologies and customers. But for how long? So after that, but rather long dissertation, what is the role of the private sector and these other? You know, before you were talking about the Kepler Institute and others, they're trying to forge things going forward. So where do you see the role of institutes like Kepler and other? not-for-profits or, or, or even governments trying to work on this uh, with governments who possibly are not going to be good actors, including possibly our own. Um, 
mm-hmm. meaning the U.S. and or the private sector, who you know certainly have may have their own agendas at point. I mean, I, here is my my little game that I play. And it's not much of a game, but that you know the space becomes the British East India Company, where you know the company that, that plays ball with the government. So. I, I guess it's going to be Boeing because they have a lot of, you know, U.S. and, and world Earth-based business. But let's just say the country of Jeff Zikistan. That, that's, that's my placeholder. We, we're like Wakanda. We've got, we've got all technology in the world and we can do this and we want to be a bad player. And I send up, you know, 50 Wakanda, uh, not Wakanda, Jeff Zikistani Space Force commandos to Mars and say, Mars now belongs to Jeff Zikistan. Who's going to stop me? Um, and while I say this, I have two other, you know, shuttles going up with, you know, 75 more Jeff Zikistan space commandos, uh, you know, so who, who is going to stop me? Um, you know, is, is there any mechanism for that? Uh, well, um, currently the United Nations Office of Under Space Affairs, right? Um, they are the legal, um, uh, entity and... And of course, yeah, it's member nations there, it's signatories. That they're the mechanism to do that. But in terms of what they can do, if, if uh, like, say, you know, we, we were talking about uh, China, you know, sending a, sending a armed uh, Tycho knots, as they call them, um, sending them to the moon. It's like, well, yeah, this is the reason why uh, groups like Space Force are being created because people predict that there could be a problem like that at some point and there's going to need to be some means of response. Um, for the most part, it's, um, well, if, you, if you're trying to do something naughty out in outer space, well, we're going to try to punish you down here on Earth. And, yeah, the, the way to do that is through, you know, uh, concerted actions, sanctions, and telling, uh, telling the leaders there, uh, you know, don't do this, it's stupid. You know, and you're a signatory to the Outer Space Treaty, so you're not allowed to do this. Basically, just good old-fashioned diplomatic pressure and, uh, you know, trade sanction pressure. And, uh, yeah, but in terms of what could be done in outer space, um, this could very well result in the militarization of space. This this fear and this inability to stick to, you know, the framework we have in place down here. Um, in the United States... Uh, uh, well, NASA uh, wrote up the Artemis Accords, and as I was saying to the Space Force Foundation a while back when we were talking, I, th- I said that I got the distinct impression that NASA produced this idea, this this document, um, which is still very, you know, really, really needs to get uh, legally sorted, um, that they created that as a way of doing sort of an end around the... Uh, what the Trump administration had signed into law. It's like, we want all things on the moon to proceed in accordance with the outer space treaty. So if anybody is uh, going to be mining and extracting resources, well, okay, fine. But, you know, if you're doing it in this area where or NASA is doing research or any of its partners are doing research and exploration, you're answerable to us. And, you don't own the land that you're on, but you can claim the resources you pull out. And yeah, so legally speaking, this uh, there is a lot to to unpack and sort and and uh, really get through here because uh, yeah, there's no there's no uh, 
solid legal framework for anything in outer space right now. Um, the Space Treaty is a very good you know, start. It's a good touchstone, and that's why space agencies keep going back to it, and the ISS is a good example, too. Um, but yeah, it, it has to be something that the, the players in space can actually agree on and hold each other to whatever by whatever means they have available to them. Yeah. Do you know of any group or government um, or maybe even the people you're associated with, uh, the, the astronomy cast folks, uh, Avi Loeb, any, anyone who's working on trying to build some sort of framework? I mean, you know, famously, there are certain, you know, think tanks who, you know, write up propositions or proposals, uh, recommendations to Supreme Court justices, you know, for, for governments, for, you know, sometimes for one party or another. And, you know, sometimes they get adopted in full or in part, you know, they the, in my field, the American Bar Association writes model rules and model statutes, and the states oftentimes adopt them word for word or, you know, 90% plus. So is there is there anything like that out there that's going to, it's, it's trying to do that beyond what you just talked about with NASA, you know, trying to uh, draft the articles, uh, the Artemis articles or Articles Accord? Mm -hmm. Well, yeah. Um, let's see. So... You have the Space Corps Foundation, they're, they're one uh, group. Uh, Space Generation Advisory Council, they, they work through the UN, so they're, they're the ones doing that. It's you know, all about uh, basically getting uh, the nations of the world to get involved in hammering out uh, kind of legal requirements and, and uh, just raising their awareness. Um, there are a number of legal institutes that are contributing to this, and uh, McGill University, actually, in, uh, in Canada here, has, uh, uh, they have a space law library, and they're not the only ones, there are, there are others too, and yeah, most of this is happening through the UN right now, and it's, yeah, their, their Office on Outer Space Affairs, also their program on space applications, and yeah, that and uh, a number of other nonprofits are all, they've all emerged in recent years for this exact reason. Uh, they understand that this is something we got to deal with going forward, and, and, uh, and not the least of which is because of commercial space. In fact, that's, that's precisely why the Moon Treaty was drafted. It was like, the Outer Space Treaty says that no nation can claim sovereignty over stuff in space, but we don't have anything that says in, in, unmistakable terms, corporations and individual private citizens can't. Right. And, and, and yeah. it seems that SpaceX is basically lapping NASA several times over, and uh, Bezos is, is probably isn't too far behind. Well, it, that, that is the perception, but it's like, people need to keep in mind, it's like, well, SpaceX, uh, NASA is their bread and butter. If it weren't for NASA, they would be entirely beholden to um, the private sector for launching satellites for them, and it's like, well, they, they'd still be making a, a darn good living, but, yeah, they would not be where they are right now. And, of course, where, whereas NASA has stalled rather rather publicly with the development of its, uh, of its rockets, right? The SLS rocket has taken, has gone, uh, yeah, over... Over time, over cost, uh, repeatedly. Um, that, nevertheless, they're still sending missions to the outer solar system, exploring all the uh, the planets there, and 
uh, contemplating the next moves that they're going to make. Um, you know, exoplanet research is a big one. Space telescopes is another New Horizons craft that, uh, that you know, buzzed by Pluto and has actually been uh, studying uh, um, Kuiper Belt objects, right? And Cassini studying Saturn and its moons. Like, if you consider the totality of it, NASA is well ahead. But yeah, SpaceX uh, and, uh, well, a few other, a handful of other commercial space entities, they are kind of embarrassing it, uh, you know, closer to home. And, and yeah, in fact, that, um, in terms of Artemis, uh, one of the consequences of another Trump administration decision, which was we want to move the timetable up um, four years sooner, right? Uh, that was 2019. Hence declared that, yeah, we're, we're going to land on the moon by 2024, no exceptions and no explanations. <laughs> it's like, yeah, that, that caused all kinds of chaos and upset for NASA. And they, you know, they continued to put on a brave face. Oh, yeah, yeah, we're going to do it. But my first impression on that was it's like they're never going to be able to get the gateway up there in time. So they're going to have to they're going to have to do a direct landing from whatever spacecraft they use to get there. And that's going to be like an Apollo mission. So, what do you do? What what's the plan beyond that? There, this, you're you're basically reducing this to a footprints and footprints and flags thing again. Right. Um, but but NASA worked around it. They're like, oh no, we're still going to build the gateway. It's just uh, we're going to send that up. Uh, you know, the elements of uh, but up early in SpaceX is going to launch it. It's like okay, we still need a a, a lunar lander rated craft to get the crew there, and SpaceX got the contract to do that. And meanwhile, SpaceX is also getting the the uh, cargo and, and uh, crew, uh, no, the commercial uh, cargo and uh, crew program, and um, yeah, that which was worked out pretty spectacularly for them. Astronauts are now launching to the ISS from from you know NASA facilities. But yeah, it's like SpaceX's success has been largely due to this idea that we just you know. Uh, just outsource it, just go to the private sector, you know, whatever plans you've got have been changed by the latest administration, and, and yeah, they've fallen back on very heavily on SpaceX. So um, you are, how so, concerned are you about, you know, Pinkerton's uh, private space marine force, uh, you know, go, going out and, let's not say SpaceX, let's, let's turn Jeff Zikistan into a private corporation, not a country, and say Jeff Zikistan wants to hire uh, the, the Pinkerton Space Security Force. And, you know, is there any, is anyone actually really concerned about that? Or is that just me having an overactive imagination? No, it, it, I'd say everybody is concerned about that. Okay. <laughs> or the, you know, every, every thinking person is concerned about this. Um, because, yeah, they, in fact, the, uh, the allegory you used about the, uh, the East India Company, um, yeah, I've heard that one a few times now. It's like, we do not want a repeat of the age of, uh, of imperialism, the, uh, the wild, wild west or any of that. We don't want robber barons making claims to, uh, astronomical bodies and, uh, just, you know, pillaging them for wealth. And we especially don't want, uh, you know, indentured workers going out there, which was actually an idea that, uh. Musk had floated, and I think he had to walk it back because someone made that comparison, right? Oh, I'm sure. So, I, I think I mentioned yeah. it on one of the prior shows, which I, I don't expect that you would have necessarily heard or not. 
But, you know, UAE has a space program. And, you know, I don't know about UAE, but some of those countries are well known for having their, you know, low, low paid workers from countries like Bangladesh and Sri Lanka and, and you know, and, and, and places like that. And you could easily extrapolate that into, you know, you could have them be sort of the indentured workers for space. And I don't want to throw UAE or Qatar or, or Bahrain or anyone like that under the bus or Kuwait. Right. I, I don't even know if that's accurate anymore. Um, but, uh, you know, it, it, it's definitely part of it. And if I must can say it out loud, that, that probably means 40 other people with resources or your, you know, presidents have, uh, have thought it as well. I mean, you always use, you know, the, the disenfranchised, the people with the least to lose always take the highest risks. Yeah. And yeah, that's, that's exactly right. Um, uh, the, uh, in fact, uh, if I recall what Musk said, he said that, um, yeah, I want to start colonizing Mars. You know, we're going to send, uh, starships, uh, regularly up there, like a hundred ships there doing, uh, regular launches every two years. And, uh, just in the course of like a Twitter conversation, which is normally how he, how he, how these things go with him, right? He said that, uh, well, yes, it's going to be expensive for people to get there, but if you can't afford it, you know, you can take out a loan with, uh, our company and work it off. And then the response to that was, Oh, you mean like indentured servitude? Oh, okay. And, uh, what's the interest on those loans and, uh, share profits, yeah, right? Tell us, yeah, yeah, exactly. It's like, they're going to be designed in such a way to keep you in debt for life. And right. yeah. So, no, yeah, no multi-millionaires be concern. work on oil rigs or, or become ice truckers. You know, it's, yeah, yeah, and yeah. So there, there is a considerable concern there, and, and more to the point, um, one thing that I draw some reassurance from is the fact that it's like, well, SpaceX is not going to be able to do uh, any of this on its own, even though their their progress has been considerable, right? Um, and NASA certainly is not going to be able to do all of this alone. It needs its commercial partners. It needs those commercial partners to have a legal framework to restrain them from doing anything, you know, uh, super villainy. Um, and of course, the international partnerships, those need to continue. And these are, all these things are in everybody's best interest because nobody really is going to benefit from a free for all kind of situation. Um, and uh, yeah. The, the billionaire class are known for thinking that they can do whatever the hell they want because they've got, well, they usually can. <laughs> but, um, yeah. I also but think that hard. In, in the founding principles of what, whatever agreements are drafted, I, you know, whether or not we acknowledge that there's sentient life in space or not or on near celestial mm-hmm. uh, I think that they should presume that there is. Um, yeah. You know, because a we don't know what you know what life will necessarily be, and I'm not sure that we know where sentience you know can necessarily be found. But I think if not, if nothing else, just to have those first principles and not repeat beyond indentured servitude and and things like that. That there's, you know, there's other things like you know, you know, colonialism and and slavery and and inadvertent you know genocides that. Uh, uh, you know, yeah. you know, maybe can be mitigated. I, I say maybe because there's so much that we don't know and can't control, but at least you can try, um, you know, yeah. in that. And so we have to pretend that the, there are, in fact, little green men and the little green men have kids that they love and stuff like that. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's uh, it is a safe assumption. It's a good one. And, and yeah, it's, it's even been a, 
Uh, I remember a research paper that was floated that said we need to jump on the idea right now that uh, this false notion that the resources of space are limitless and the you know uh, room uh, within which to move because if we like making comparisons uh, to the past to uh, you know popularize these ideas you know the idea of all oh, new frontier exploration and so much to learn and grow and how this country was founded. It's like, if we're going to do that, you know, in a positive sense, we have to look at the flip side of that, right? All the negative things that happened. Um, one of the things of the colonial imperial era was this perception that, oh, limitless space in, in to which we can spread such abundant resources. And yeah, a lot of people, even at the time, they were looking around there, they can, nope, you know, it's, it's, Quite the, there's a lot of resource, a lot of trees, a lot of land right now, but like not only are people being murdered to clear that land, not only are people being enslaved to work it, but the resources themselves are finite. It's just they, they only seem infinite because right now we haven't, uh, our, our current numbers aren't going to make a huge dent, but they will eventually. And yeah, so... The, the, our future in space, There, there's a lot of people who say humanity's future is in space. I would say, yes, that is true. That's probably the only way we're going to survive as a species. And I'm talking about climate change and uh, overpopulation in addition to, um, you know, uh, an asteroid strike. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, in fact, I think, I think the, the, uh, an asteroid strike is probably one of the lesser arguments for why we need to get out into space more. Say yeah, that that that's always a possibility, but that seems to me a much less uh, likely or or uh, less um, that that threat is addressable. Whereas just our civilization collapsing due to sheer numbers, short-sightedness, you know, the, uh, in, in inaction on climate change and so forth, that's a way more likely scenario. We we need to you know get out there and do the research and utilize the resources to to save our planet but uh, yeah there there's every possibility that our future could be just like our past and that we go about that the wrong way well so i think this is probably yeah. a, a fitting place to tie this one up in a bow but there's so much more to talk about and i hope that you will consider uh coming back again both on garden of doom and garden views Garden of Doom, we can maybe have a little bit more fun with, you know, comparing what science fiction shows, have, you know, or movies have gotten it the, the most right and what we should worry about from there and, and, and other topics as well. But uh, and maybe some of the more fantastical things that science has detected, not that talking about relativity and space surfing, basically, or water skiing to, to, to beat the mm -hmm. speed of light isn't fantastical in, in and of itself. Um, but uh, as things emerge uh, that are policy-driven, reality-driven, science-driven, and uh, legal-driven, uh, I'd love to call upon you as a future resource and, uh, and maybe a reference totally. for other people who are willing to talk about this. It's good to know that there are people and organizations and not-for-profits that are thinking about this and actively working on it. I, I was sort of afraid I was the only one. Uh, doing it uh, oh, no. actively. Well, that's good. I mean, it, it, it really shouldn't yeah. be. It, it shouldn't be some lawyer who's been podcasting for two years being the, you know, the only one to actually be 
you know, pursuing this in some sort of semi-methodical way because I, you know, I also try to make it somewhat entertaining anyway. Um, but yeah, so is there anything else that you want to tell us that we haven't covered and or promote where people can find you, support you, or any of the work that, that you do or are involved with, uh, any of your, your uh, journalistic works, if you have any fiction, et cetera, et cetera? Uh, yeah. Um, yes to all of that. Uh, <laughs> well, um, for starters, yeah, so I, I would like to... Uh, mention how, yeah, uh, the podcast series, I, I believe I already mentioned it earlier, but um, that will be uh, that will be coming up very soon and on uh, ITSP Magazine, um, their uh, rather uh, large and uh, community of podcasters who have uh, their channels for this one place, and it stands for the Intersection of Technology and Society, and uh, yeah, it's, it's called Stories from Space, and it will be their first uh, dedicated space podcast awesome um so yeah so there's there's that uh i invite people to come by universe today and interesting engineering just look for matt williams i i'm usually uh there um and yeah well actually i have a, a link to uh fiction that i've uh written which uh i wrote a series of books uh between uh they were published between 2017 and 2020 uh, unfortunately, the publisher is is not going to be around that much longer. They didn't uh, they didn't survive the pandemic, oh. so uh, yeah, they may they're curtailing. But I do plan to keep these titles available, uh, however however I can, because uh, yeah, I'm working on other ones. But yeah, that uh, basically the the books, much like uh, the writing I do, it, it, it's about where. Um, well, what you what you deal with on your two channels, I'm always trying to find the uh, the middle lane there that where the two things just <laughs> inextricably merge, right? Like, yes, this is cool. How is this? How can we do this? How is that going to happen? And, or yeah, on the other hand, it's like, oh, this is dark and scary. Let's let's talk about that. You know, that How's works that too. Play out? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, um, that's about uh, that's about all I can offer. That that is. That is uh, me beyond uh, within and beyond my what I do uh, for my day job. Okay, well, wonderful. And, uh, yeah. Oh, and uh, yeah, this summer I will be teaching. Uh, not this summer, sorry. Uh, this fall, I'll be teaching a course through the Kepler Space Institute about uh, this. This one will be specifically geared towards Mars and our uh, the exploration thereof, our, our collective. Uh, you know, views of it and understanding of it, which have changed so much in the last, uh, in the course of recorded human history, and uh, yeah, how we might live there someday. So that I think will be a good time for anyone who's interested in the idea of humans living off world and, and what we actually know about the, uh, the planets that are out there. All right, folks. Well, you've heard it all. You, you've heard where you can reach him. You can, uh, if you're in the area, or maybe it's an online course, you can look into that at the Kepler Institute. Um, I will try to put the link. I'll try to remember to put it into the show notes, but it's https colon backslash backslash www.amazon.com backslash Matthew capital M uh, hyphen capital S hyphen Williams. Uh, that should be enough to find it. The rest of it is all the, the technical backslash stuff that if I read it, it'll just sound like I'm reading a whole lot of numbers and probably I'll get them wrong because my nearsighted vision is going quickly. Um, 
But uh, yeah, and we hope to have Matt on again. He seemed to give his assent verbally, and I can see him on Skype visibly um, yep. here as well. So that's going to be really cool. Um, so, folks, you know, please uh, take cart on that, and we're going to continue our exploration into the emerging law space with as many people as we can get to talk to us about it until we think that we've gone about as far as we can, and hopefully. Folks like Matt and the Kepler Institute and others will uh, keep giving us more material that we can keep going with it, um, or we'll stumble onto something else at that point. But uh, I, I imagine that we'll have plenty of material for the future. So you know, please rate, review the show, share it with your friends, uh, let them know that we exist and what we're doing here. And um, if you subscribe to Garden of Doom, you get Garden Views automatically. They're on the same feed. If you don't like Garden of Doom, just delete it. Um, you'll, well, that's the only way to gar get Garden Views. I want to thank our friends at the Hameen Media Group, at Wrestling Suit Network, and at the PWC Network, who all carry this show. So thanks to all those folks. And we will hopefully hear you next week. I've been stuffed in your pocket for the last hundred days. When I don't get my bath, I take it out on the slaves. So grease up your baby for the ball on the hill. I'll polish them rockets now and swallow those pills and say, oh. Space long.